and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host, Michelle Krasavitsky. And I'm your co-host, Emily Hutchinson. And we are here with Teddy Rama. Teddy, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm a big fan of the show, so I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Teddy, can you tell us what it is that you're researching and just a very brief introduction to what that is? Okay, yeah. So um, in general, I do research in what's called applied mathematics. So it's basically like the intersection of mathematics and some applied discipline like uh, biology, physics, etc. So in my case, I do mathematical biology. So I use mathematical tools in you know various biological contexts. So in particular, I look at uh, ecology and also I'm interested in epidemiology and heterogeneous diseases. That sounds very interesting. Uh, have you always been interested in these areas or is this something that you found uh, was drawing you in during your academic journey? Oh yeah, so uh, when I was in undergrad, uh, I majored in math, but I also really liked biology. So I thought this was a very good way to combine two subjects that I really liked. And it just kind of went from there. That's awesome. Can you dig into that a little bit more for us? So how do you combine math and biology? Because I've heard some biologists say, oh, I like biology because it's the one science that doesn't use a lot of math. So how are you bringing those two together? Right. So, yeah, so that's a good question. Um, so personally, I'm more on the math side than the biology side. So one thing I like about this mathematical biology is that I often collaborate a lot with biologists. So I know very little about biology and compared to what I know about math. So uh, usually I work with a biologist or uh, I have to read a lot of their papers, which again, often I don't really understand most of it. So I have to get help from them first. And then from there, um, so, so you know, like how, of course, you know, in physics, most people understand that you need math to model physical problems, right? But even in biology, like a lot of biology just uh, is, is chemistry in a sense, right? And chemistry is just physics. So the, the mathematical modeling you do in physics can also be applied to biological systems. So after I learned the biology from a biologist, I then set up some system of equations usually that describe the dynamics of whatever biological phenomenon I'm looking at. Um, so that, that's basically the way that the, the research is done. So it's, it's a lot of reading and then a bit of math. That sounds very complicated, but also very cool. So for those like me who haven't really dabbled in the natural sciences, can you give any real life or real world examples of that kind of interaction taking place? Uh, sure, so um, unfortunately for me, I'm limited to just not knowing about it in academia, but uh, in, in that, so, so for example, like last year, um, I worked with a group at the Fields Institute, which we basically looked at COVID modeling. So that's very relevant right now, right? So that's an example of uh, math playing a role in epidemiology. Um, so we had to know how, for example, um, a, a virus would interact in the presence of a vaccine. So that's something that I don't know anything about, but I take the knowledge from you know, the virologists, um, all the scientists who work in that field. And then we, we just modeled uh, on the population level um, how the disease will spread over time. Uh, based on uh, you know you know our our theoretical modeling, that's an example of like a real situation where it's being used uh, in a topical way as well. So yeah, that sounds really cool. And there must be so many factors that go into that. How do you go about making the model? Is it like lines of code on the simulator? Like, is it how do you do that? Yeah, that's a yeah that's a very good question. So so there's many ways to do it. What I usually do is called differential equation modeling. So in my case, I build a system of equations. So I have many equations 
that each equation can represent a different variable that I'm that I'm looking at, right? So one paper I did uh, like last year was I looked at the spread of an invasive weed, which is you know like a plant species that's not native to a certain forest that could be depleting the forest when interacting with other species that are native there, right? So in that case, I have an equation for each of the components. So I have an equation representing the leaves of the native species, an equation for the stem of the native species, an equation for the um, invasive species. So every biological entity that I'm looking at has its own equation. And then basically these equations are very complicated usually. So solving them is not something we, we usually do, but as you said, we can use computers and we can run simulations to see what the solutions are approximately gonna look like. And that can help us make predictions on, you know, like in the case of this uh, plant modeling, uh, what kind of control measures we can use to avoid the forest being depleted. Um, yeah. That's a very interesting example. Is that something that was, that you worked on in a more of a theoretical sense, or was this happening somewhere uh, near London or, or anywhere in Ontario with, with the topic of invasive uh, species? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. Yeah, so for this one, um, this project started off because I was doing a course, you know, a, a grad course on uh, partial differential equations. So basically, I just wanted to look at a system that was similar to something I was learning in the course. And I came across one of these papers that was looking at a, so the weed in particular was called uh, T. fluminensis. So this one is actually not native to London. It's native to, um, I think, Australia and Eastern United States. So it's not like it's something that's relevant here directly. But yeah, so it, it came just from a course. But then after learning about the, te the math techniques from the course, I, I like to be able to apply them to the biological context. That's really neat. And so you've talked a bit about COVID and invasive plants. I wonder, what have you done relating to disease dynamics and that sort of thing? You mentioned at the beginning that you have a, a wide range of topics. So I'm wondering what kind of diseases, what would that even look like? Right. Yeah. So that's, uh, so another very, um, I, I'd say probably popular uh, field of modeling right now is in um, cancer treatment. So right now I'm looking at, um, a certain type of modality, which is called oncolytic virotherapy. So that's where you take a virus that's, that's bioengineered to destroy only cancer cells and to leave you know, the surrounding healthy tissue alone. So the idea there, um, there's one virus called TVEX. So we take a herpes simplex virus and we, we alter its genetic code a little bit so that it's no longer harmful to healthy cells, but it selectively attacks melanoma cancer cells, right? So, um, in this case, you know, mathematical modeling can be pretty useful here, I think, because you can make predictions on how the virus will interact and what the outcome will be for a patient without having to actually use the virus, uh, you know, in, in a clinical trial. I mean, of course, you have to do clinical trials. There's no question about that. But you can make predictions without having to use any actual subjects. So that, that's an example of where um, we're looking at heterogeneous diseases and how we can use mathematical modeling uh, for those kind of problems. That's really neat. I just want to follow up a little bit about that. You talked about how the simulations kind of avoid using humans, and that makes a lot of sense. Like you can uh, figure out more without actually doing all these clinical trials. I wonder if you can talk a bit about the power of simulations and what you can do with them that you can't do in, in real life and how, how that helps the field. I think what you just said is the important part, which is what we can do in simulations is in a matter of 10 seconds, I can run code that predicts something 10 years into the future. So I don't have to wait for 10 years to get data from a trial. I mean, of course, you still need the data, but um, th this can give us some suggestions we can make before having to wait 10 years. So it's kind of like saving time. That's one of the important um, features of 
running simulations. So instead of waiting five years, I can wait 10 seconds after running the code. Now, of course, code is not as realistic. Uh, you know, the, the math I do is not as realistic as what happens in real life, but it can sometimes make some suggestions that might be useful later on in real life. So I think this is a very pertinent conversation, especially given uh, the recent COVID pandemic where the word simulation has been on, on our minds and spoken by um, spoken about by scientists and health officials and, and um, mathematicians. Uh, and so kind of going back, my next question goes back to your interest in epidemiology. Um, is this something that you were always interested in or has the COVID pandemic sparked some kind of new avenue for you that you see the field uh, expanding in scope because of it? I have always been interested in epidemiological modeling because there's just a lot of neat math that goes behind it. And I'm a really big fan of the actual mathematics. Um, if some nice um, you know, biological results can come out of it, I'm always happy for that as well. But, you know, I just love running simulations. Like, I just love creating new simulations. So, yeah, I would say I've been pretty much always interested in doing that. Um, but, yeah, also, uh, I, I've learned a lot of new things with doing this kind of work because it's outside of my usual field. So, you know, I, I learned a lot from people that work in that area. So I've also really enjoyed uh, doing that. And then when you're running these simulations, particularly when it's about uh, health, um, it, what kind of intersection is there between maybe the other fields in natural sciences? I imagine maybe physics doesn't play as big of a role, uh, but when it comes to things like viruses, I imagine that uh, chemistry and biology uh, play a, have a big relationship. Yeah, um, yeah, so I guess it probably depends a lot on the particular problem. So, I mean, physics can play a big role, for example, if you're looking at radiation therapy for treating certain cancers. Um, but yeah, of course, yeah, certainly biology and chemistry are very important. Um, but in my case, I do like mathematical modeling. So um, I just look at a, so the way I kind of like to describe it is, you know, like if you have like a painter with um, a paintbrush, a canvas, and you have something you're looking at that you're going to paint, right? So the biology is kind of like the subject of the painting, whereas the math is kind of like the paintbrush. Um, so I'm, I'm inspired by the object that I'm painting, but the stuff I'm creating is going on the canvas. Now, if that canvas happens to give some new biological, or sorry, some new uh, insight on the subject, or in this case, some new biological insight, that'd be very nice. But my work is more so in the canvas rather than in the, in the actual subject, if, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, that's a great analogy. Yeah, I, I really like it too. And I like, especially how you said you were like kind of inspired by math. I know a lot of people aren't like you hear a lot of kids like dreading math class and, and what would you say to them? Like, how would you explain the beauty of math to people who might be afraid of it? I'm so glad you asked because actually another thing that I'm very passionate about is math education. So um, being able to communicate math. So not just teaching it to, um, yes, uh, certainly also teaching it uh, to younger audiences to make sure that they're interested in it, but also a communication to broad audiences. Um, that might have said in the past that they don't think they're good at math or something like this, or they're not a numbers person or whatever kind of expressions. Um, yeah, I, th I think that's very important. So that's another reason why I love to collaborate with people outside of math, like biologists, because I know very little about biology. So they have to kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to say dumb it down for me, but they have to kind of uh, explain it in a way that I can understand. So I gain a lot of skills from them that I would like to be able to transfer to explaining math in a less, um, you know, jargony way to people that are not working in the field. But also, I think it's important to, you know, like, fr from a young age, let people know that 
if you are interested, you can learn math and there is nothing stopping you. And if I can do it, then you, you can certainly do it as well. And then on the topic of these collaborations, have you, whether in school or out of it, have you ever um, had the opportunity to connect math to any other kind of discipline that isn't biology? Um, I've done some uh, problems that are just math for the sake of, so like some pure math problems, which have no relation to any to biology. Uh, but as far as the work I've done, it's pretty much all just been um, in biology. Could you maybe tell us about how other people are using mathematical simulations? Because now I'm thinking like, oh, there could be so many things we can apply to this. Like how, how are other people using it, if you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so of course, uh, as we just talked about some mathematical biology applications, um, of course, they're also using simulations in, in physics. So I think some, um, some friends of mine are, are looking at star formation and, and, and they're running simulations to see uh, the evolution of the stars over time. Now, I shouldn't speak too much about that because that's way out of my depth and I mm -hmm. don't really know exactly how they do it. But that, that's just one example I can think of. So basically, um, if something has properties of evolving over time, then you can use simulations to make predictions on how that will evolve, right? So anything like that can certainly use simulations. Um, so, so that's why an important part of uh, the work I do, I'd say about half of it is really coding rather than just doing you know, math, mathematics itself. And are these projects, do they happen in a big team or is it you and one other person? They sound so big in scope. Yeah, so in the past, I didn't really like working in big teams because you know when you're doing a big project, everyone wants to make changes and then one person's not happy and then everyone else has to make a change. Um, so in the past, I've done more so just uh, individual projects or with my supervisor. But then, like I said, last year, I did a COVID modeling project with a large group of people. And actually, I think I enjoyed that a lot more uh, because I think the paper was definitely a lot stronger than anything I could have done alone. So yeah, personally, I think it's best to do these kind of projects in large groups rather than small, small ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really neat. So I'm just wondering if you can share with us a bit about what doing a PhD in math looks like. Like what, what is your day-to-day -day work look like and your research look like? And then my other question, I, this is a two-part one. Uh, what is your end dissertation going to be? So I know people write a big paper or they compose a piece of music. So what is your end goal for your PhD? Okay, yeah. uh, Okay. so for the first question of what is my day like? Um, so yeah, it's a lot of just reading papers. Um, some, so I have to read some biology papers, some math papers, because I also have to be learning about different math tools that I can apply to the actual problems. Um, so in my case, I do applied math, not pure math. So pure math, I'm guessing, is totally different, um, and I have very little clue on how that's done. But for applied math, it's a lot of reading papers, um, coming up with my own models based on those papers, analyzing the models using mathematical tools, and then a lot of coding, which is just you know making the simulations uh, to try to find some results uh, for those papers. And then for you know my dissertation or for my my overall goal here, um, I'm looking at basically spatial modeling. So spatial meaning um, just my model will be a dynamical model, which means I look at how a system, a biological system evolves over time, but I'm also looking at it over space. So in, in my particular case, I'm, I'm looking at models that are both uh, dependent on time, but also dependent on space. So for example, the, the, the spreading of a weed, uh, I have a forest map that I'm looking at uh, over which a weed is growing, right? So there's also a spatial factor there. Or when you're looking at, for example, melanoma treatment with oncolytic viruses, uh, cancer has a tendency to spread. 
So I'm looking at not just how much cancer there is, but where it will spread over a certain given time, or hopefully where it won't spread. Um, so I, I like to look at also the spatial modeling. So there's a lot of different math tools that can be used for this kind of, uh, this kind of work. And was there a specific reason that you chose Western to do your uh, PhD at? Yeah, so my main reason was uh, my supervisor who's, um, yeah, so uh, I, I was, a, I had read a lot of his work before that. Um, so it's, that's pretty much the biggest reason I'd say, which is that uh, his work is very similar to what I'm interested in. And he's been very, very helpful. So I'd say that's like the most important factor for me personally. So to follow up on that question, what advice would you give to undergrads who are interested in math and they're looking for a PhD position? How would you help them to, to meet that goal? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'd say that, um, so math is a, a lot broader than a lot of uh, people think, but if they're already undergraduate students in math, they probably know that already. Um, so I would just tell them to, make sure that they can zero in on one of their interests or some of their interests and apply. Cause you know, when you're applying for a PhD in math or applied math, you have to look at a particular subtopic that you're interested in like mathematical biology or chaos theory, et cetera. So just make sure that you have something that interests you deeply make sure you uh, read a few papers and then apply to whatever interests you, I guess. And it feels like we've been speaking about math this entire time, which makes sense. Uh, do you have any other hobbies or interests outside of uh, mathematics and biology? Um, yeah, these days, not really, because I'm you know, getting close to the end of my degree. So I, I'm spending a lot of time just working on that. But uh, when I do have time, um, you know, the usual stuff, hiking, I like to read, walk my dog, <laughs> nothing, nothing, you know, too big, but yeah. That's great. And so you're almost done your PhD. Where do you see your career going from here? What's your immediate plan for the future? And where would you like to see yourself when you're completely done and in the world? Okay, so uh, immediate plan would be, um, you know, postdoc next, uh, kind of like the usual trajectory for a lot of uh, PhD students. Um, but as far as long-term goals, I'm not still 100% decided. Um, I do see myself also potentially going into um, industry or science communication. I think that's also something I'm very interested in. Uh, but for short term, I'm just, you know, taking it a day at a time. So for now, it's just postdoc next and we'll see after that. So to, uh, to return to a topic that we briefly touched upon earlier, which is education. Uh, as someone who's doing her master's in education, I know that the field is open to everybody from different disciplines and my peers do such uh, diverse and complex uh, research. And so I was just wondering, is it something that you think you'll dip your toe in in the future, whether um, in a big capacity or in a part-time capacity? Uh, what, what, what role do you see education playing uh in your future not as a student oh yeah so yeah that's a great question so i've definitely thought about that a lot actually um and i, I do plan on staying involved in some capacity at least in math education uh yeah so during my time in, in, in my grad studies um I, I was lucky enough to be able to work as a course instructor so i've gotten some nice uh, experience teaching math and i want to make sure i can keep doing that so both in the way of teaching math to you know, mathematical audiences, but also in any way that can help me communicate. Although for that, I'll have to get more experience with education first. Um, so, but yeah, that's definitely something I really uh, want to get into at some point. I want to ask, what is the best part of your day? Like, what is what has been the most memorable experience of doing this math PhD? What are you going to take with you? 
uh, probably like all the, you know, the people I met in the program, um, my supervisor was definitely a very positive influence in my life. Um, so that's probably just the people I met, but also, of course, the, the math I learned, I'm really, I'm, I'm really happy with that'll never be taken away from me. So it's very nice. And then it sounds like you have a very busy schedule and, and, and a busy day. And so now that we're during our exam seasons and final seasons, do you have any advice about load management and, and just how to juggle uh, so many different disciplines and, and projects at once? And that's pretty funny because uh, for me, this is like the more relaxed time because when students have classes, I think that's more work for us typically, if I'm not wrong. But uh, so for now, I have more time to work on my, on my, on my work. But as far as load management, um, I think it's good to just make sure you have goals that you're setting like on a weekly basis, maybe, or maybe on a monthly basis um, to make sure you can achieve those and that you're making progress. But also if you can't achieve them, I think it's important not to dwell too much on it or not to, you know, beat yourself up over it. Uh, just, just, you know, keep going at it. That's great advice. And then just speaking about like managing coursework and things like that, can you tell us a little bit about what the requirements were for your PhD? Did you have to TA? Did you have to do a qualifying exam? What were those components? Oh yeah, uh, so uh, first of all, there was some coursework components. Then there was a comprehensive exam. So basically we had uh, to do like an eight hour exam that was based on all, not continuous of course, right? But like just usual kind of comprehensive exam. That I think a lot of uh, PhD programs do uh, where we had to do basically undergraduate math problems and then graduate math problems just so we could show that we understood the actual math. And then after that, it's mainly just focusing on research. Yeah, so it's about a year of courses and comprehensive exam and then research. And, and then, you know, in there yet, we just give presentations every uh, year, I guess, uh, to show our progress. And where have you completed your previous schooling? Um, I did my undergrad at uh, McGill. Uh, okay, so I have one question and I was saving it for, for near the end because it's my favorite question, but are you ever shocked by the results of your study? So I know you said you run a simulation and then in 10 seconds you have an answer, but during those 10 seconds, do you ever wonder what is going to happen with the disease or the trees or anything like that? And are you ever really surprised by the results? Yeah, that's a really good question because that's actually, the, that, that's my favorite kind of result is when it's shocking. If I get a result like, um, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, if, if I apply a certain uh, amount of the virus, then the tumor will be reduced by a certain amount. Sure, that's a good result, but that's expected. But if I get a result that's shocking, that's something that I can actually take action on and try to investigate further to see if there's any reason for that, or if maybe I just made a mistake somewhere in my code. <laughs> yeah, that, that's my favorite kind of uh, result, which is a shocking one. Yeah, that's great. And then where do you take the results? Like, I, I know you publish your results in a paper, but where do you expect them to go after that? Who takes on the next thing and, and uses what you're, what you're working on? Um, as far as I know, um, I guess any other researcher who wants to continue with uh, what, what I've done and, you know, to, to improve on it. Um, if, you're, if you're asking about, like, uh, does it ever, you know, make a difference clinically? Um, in my case, probably not since I've just started, but um, I think that does happen sometimes, which is where you can take the results of the simulation and use it to make um, suggestions on, on clinical work as well. So do you ever get a result and you think, oh, oh, I need to call someone. I need to tell them what to do. I'm going to call the prime minister or anything like that. Uh, yeah, but I don't know who to call, so. Yeah. <laughs> and while the simulations they run quickly. I'm wondering how long is one project from 
the idea to the very end? Yeah, uh, yeah, good question. So I guess it's mainly just reading for a lot of it, like 80%, not 80, like 60% of it is reading. Um, and then 40% is where I actually do the math, do the simulations. Uh, the reading is the longest part. And then the simulations and the math are actually pretty quick, I'd say. Um, so overall, one project, if we define a project to be like, um, to get something that's uh, like, like a new result or an interesting result, probably I'd say it might take like uh, two or three months or maybe four months, depending on the, the project itself. And then how does the coding process work? Do you have like, are you making up brand new code for each one? I personally don't have any experience in computer coding, but I understand that uh, you have to be very careful not to have any mistakes anywhere or anything like that. Do you have to make up whole new things each time? Or are you working kind of off a template? Um, so it is from scratch, but the kind of techniques I use are the same tech or very similar techniques every time. So I'm not like learning something new every time. I'm just recreating using very similar tools every time. Is there ever an instance where you find I have to scrap everything and start from the beginning because it's just not working or is code reliable in the sense that you can always uh, kind of use the same template? Uh, yeah, sometimes like if, if I have uh, too many bugs in my code or something, I might just scrap it and start all over because, uh, you know, if I'm like too tired to try to go over everything and find the errors, I could do that sometimes. That's probably bad practice, though, so I don't think people should do that. But yeah, so sometimes I do definitely do that. That's great. Well, we're almost at the end of our time here. So I just want to ask one more question. What would you say to kind of defend math's honor to all the people who don't like it? What, what is your last word on, hey, math is amazing? Okay, yeah. So um, I think that's, that's a great question. I don't want to give a bad answer for that one because I really want a lot of people to look into math. Um, even, you know, just uh, when you're solving puzzles or when you're working on any kind of problem, you, you could basically be doing math in a sense, right? So I think it's very important that, not very important, but I think it would be very nice that a lot of people or that more people do try to get into math because you'll, you'll find a lot of enjoyment just working even on some very simple problems. Um, and then, but also beyond that, you can see that math, you don't have to just do it for the sake of math. If you're interested in some biological problem, for example, you can also uh, do something like that, right? Um, so yeah, th there's a lot of ways to, uh, to get into math. And then anyone who's interested, uh, you can look into what's called the Colas conjecture. So that's a very simple mathematical problem uh, that basically someone who's like, uh, like five years old can understand, but still no one has been able to actually prove it. So, you know, if you want to try proving that, then that would be great. You can add some knowledge to math. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think in doing those kind of problems is probably the best way to get interested in, in, in math. That's, that's awesome. And so, uh, Teddy, thank you so much for coming on. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Michelle Krasovitsky, and my co-host was Amelie Hutchinson, uh, who is also our producer. We've been speaking with Teddy Rama. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram. Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.